You're listening to Expat Property Story, a podcast in which I share my story to smooth the way for you to have your own Expat Property Story. Hello there. Welcome to episode 79, which is the third and final chapter of our three-part special telling the story of how we made £126,000 in two days in mid-November 2022. And in this instalment, I'm going to explain how we financed the deals, our plans for the properties, and the lessons learned from what was for us an amazing experience and an important step in the professionalisation of our property business. We're using this three-part special as the backdrop to the launch of our wonderful new website, which you can check out at www.expatpropertystory.com. Now, at the risk of repeating what I said on the last two episodes, if you sign up to our mailing list, you can expect three things. Firstly, a newsletter, which will initially be released monthly. And the first one is ready to read right now and contains lots of useful information, such as up-to-date auction statistics from EIG, details of the Towns Fund for England, which will tell you which towns are in line for regeneration, and especially for expats, a link to the Corruption Perception Index, so you can find out how hard it is to get a mortgage in the country you're living in at the moment. The second reason to sign up is to receive our 23-step guide to buying at auction. Existing subscribers should already have received the newsletter and I'll get the auction guide out to you in the next week. And the final incentive is to be in with a chance to win a copy of Amazon best-selling book Building Your Dream Life, How Property Can Help You Quit the Rat Race by friend of the pod, Bronwyn Verncombe. If you live in the UK, you'll get a hard copy and won't even have to pay for postage. And if you live outside the UK, Bronwyn will send you a PDF. All you have to do is to sign up to the mailing list and be prepared to write an honest review of the book on Amazon. Previously on Expat Property Story. In the first part of this story, so that's episode 77, I explained how we had made a post-auction offer on a three-bed semi in Lancashire, which had been accepted by the auctioneer, but subsequently rejected by the vendor, which was a large property fund looking to offload 20-odd properties, which only amounted to about 1% of their overall portfolio, as they sought to raise millions of pounds before Christmas in a bid to prove to the city how quickly they could raise cash if they wanted to. There seemed to be a difference of opinion between the property fund and the auction house as the properties were now available as substantial discounts outside of the auction and were available to anyone able to exchange quickly on a first-past-the-post basis. An impromptu meeting of the Auction Buyers Club, of which I'm a member, had been set up to review the properties on offer and I had been the first to show interest in a three-bed semi in Nottingham. It had been too late to exchange on the Friday, so I made sure that everything was in order over the weekend to push ahead with the purchase on the Monday. And then on the Tuesday, we had been re-offered the deal for the three-bed semi in Lancashire, which we'd agreed to buy on the Friday, only for the auctioneer to phone back, saying the vendor wanted more money. Although the price was not reduced, it was now being sold outside of the auction, which made it cheaper for us. Despite the fact that we only had six hours between the initial phone call and the deadline for exchange, we pulled it off with minutes to spare, thanks in no small part to the efforts of our amazing solicitor, for whom we paid a headhunting fee to a property consultancy firm. 
We had seen home track reports of both the Nottingham and Lancashire properties indicating that the former was priced at £60,000 below its estimated capital value, while the latter was discounted to the tune of £66,000, giving us an overall total of £126,000 extra equity in just two days. Which brings us up to speed for today's episode, in which I thought you might like to know how we financed these deals. Our plan had been to use bridging, or short-term finance as my broker prefers to call it, as for some reason he doesn't like the word bridging. As security for this short-term loan, we had intended to use our unencumbered cash-purchased block of flats in Derbyshire. We'd bought this multi-unit freehold block pre-auction back in September 2022, which was a long story in itself, but with a happy ending in episode 49. But when I added up all the costs involved in arranging short-term finance via institutional lending, such as the 1.95% arrangement fee, mortgage broker's fee, lender's legal fees, valuation fee, as well as the monthly interest rate, which I believe was 0.83% at the time, the overall yearly interest rate was significantly north of 10%. I'd done all the numbers, so we had the funds and organisation in place for this to proceed. But it occurred to me, that we had nothing to lose by contacting someone I know, like and trust to see whether there wasn't a win-win opportunity for all of us. I've been tentatively looking into raising private finance for a while now and the consensus seems to be that you should wait for people to approach you. In fact, this was how it came about the first time we'd borrowed money when we bought three HMOs during lockdown, but that had been a less formal arrangement. And although we'd drawn up a loan agreement, it had been done without solicitors but now we were in a position where we had exchanged contracts on two fantastic deals and rather than giving our money to faceless bankers with their computer-says-no attitude, I would rather have offered the opportunity to someone within my network. So I told my contact about the Nottingham deal and that I was prepared to pay for bridging but wanted to give him the opportunity first. He expressed preliminary interest and we had a couple of Zoom meetings where we went through everything in detail. We talked mostly about his needs in terms of security and when he needed his funds back and the penalties that would kick in if the loan was not repaid by the agreed date. He was obviously also keen to know more about the deal itself, our plans for the property and the different potential exit strategies which would ensure the return of his funds. After explaining the scenario and showing him the home track report, he also wanted more transparency around our portfolio as a whole, which at the time sat at a very healthy loan-to-value of around 45%. I asked someone else in my network for a loan agreement template and sent it to my investor. Now this investor has both a legal and financial background and he wanted to make sure he was completely protected. So I was happy for him to go over the agreement with a fine tooth comb and together we tweaked it in order to arrive at an arrangement that he and I were both comfortable with. He also wanted some security against the loan and a personal guarantee. Now, if you go down the institutional financing route, the lender will ask you for all these things anyway. So we were happy to provide this security, which was important to my investor as it lowered his risk. So because this was our first rodeo, so to speak, we were perhaps more generous than we would be the second time round. But that's the case in most walks of life. I'm sure Lionel Messi's first contract with Barcelona was not as substantial as his last. So we were philosophical about our generosity given that we had little track record, so in that sense, it was more risky for the investor, and the more risk, the more reward. 
If we were to offer such a high interest rate to our partners today, it would probably be without a legal charge. A loan without a legal charge would give us more flexibility and allow us to allocate the finances around the business as a whole rather than having it tied to one property. So, with the loan agreement, the legal charge and the personal guarantee documents drafted, revised and in place, we were making good progress. Meanwhile, I was telling an old friend about these deals and when he found out that someone was investing in the Monday deal in Nottingham, he said that he might be interested in financing the Tuesday deal in Lancashire. He was reassured by the fact that the first investor had a legal and financial background and had had such a big part in the drawing up of the three documents. So the new investor was keen to take advantage of the opportunity too. So I went through the same process as I'd gone through with the first angel. I showed him the home track report. I talked about our plans for the property, the different potential exit strategies and how he would get his funds back. And most importantly, we talked about the investor's needs. What was most important to him? Now this investor is a personal friend going back decades. In addition to getting his money back with interest, his main concern was protecting our friendship. What would be the impact on our relationship if things went wrong? This was something that concerned me too. I've heard many people in property saying that the first or best place to offer angel investment opportunities is to family and friends. But arguably, there are just as many risks here as with less personal sources of funding. It's just that the risks are different. After reflecting on it, I came to the conclusion that this was a business relationship. It was effectively a mortgage and that it should be treated as such. I wouldn't worry about losing a bank as a friend and the bank wouldn't give a stuff about losing me as a friend. A loan agreement is an emotion-free contract with black and white legally binding consequences for each and every scenario between two parties. And if both sides of a private finance arrangement approach it in this way from the beginning, then there's no reason to fall out. Now, if you've arranged a limited company mortgage, you will know that the lender demands a personal guarantee and you have to get a signed statement from a solicitor saying that they've explained exactly what this entails. You have to do this for each and every guarantee you give, whether it's the first time you've done it or the tenth. Some legal tasks require top quality expertise and some just require a signature. And given that this was closer to the tenth than the first time I've provided a personal guarantee, I went looking for a cheap and cheerful online legal company. The one I found wasted my time for a couple of days before telling me they couldn't do it because I was based in Hong Kong. So I went back to my tried and by now trusted new solicitor who obliged with minimum fuss. The problem was the completion was now just 14 working days away and nothing was signed and I needed to make sure I had a fallback option given that if I failed to complete, I would lose my 10% deposits. I contacted my mortgage broker to keep him in the loop. My broker told me that if I went down the institutional lender route for short-term finance, he would need to know by the end of the week, as it would take time to arrange. He also warned me that if, later on, I wanted to arrange longer-term financing, i.e. with a traditional mortgage, for reasons relating to anti-money laundering and the need to provide information as to the source of the monies, I would need to ensure that the angel investors' funds had come from British bank accounts. The next step involved exchanging original copies of the signature pages of all three agreements. These would need to be wet signature documents. All signature pages were sent to my solicitor, mine by DHL from Hong Kong, and my UK investor by post. 
In addition to my signed copies of the loan agreement, the legal charge and the personal guarantee, I also sent my solicitor a signed copy of a form called an RX1, which places a restriction on the title at the land registry, meaning that the property cannot be sold until the restriction is lifted by the investor. And also a signed copy of a form called an MRO1, which registers that the investor has a charge over the property. The MRO1 is filed at company's house. The dates on all the agreements were synchronised according to the day of completion, so it was arranged that the investors had their funds in my bank account in advance of this so that the monies could be sent to my solicitor ahead of completion. Everything went ahead as planned and the investors have chosen to receive their interest monthly so that they can see the fruits of their investment show up in their bank accounts each and every month. Our plan for the properties is to run them as serviced accommodation, targeting contractors, supported by two different management agents who we're looking forward to working with for the first time. And while we're on the subject, next week's show features an interview with Mark Simpson from Boostly. Mark has a podcast, a book, and a mission to help one million people worldwide cut down on their over-reliance on Airbnb. And the episode is packed full of brilliant tips, tricks, and tactics for short-term rental success. So what lessons have we learned from this whole experience? What enabled this outcome? The first is the fact that we had all our ducks in a row to be able to move quickly when we needed to. People use the expression power team, and I guess having a history of working with a trusted tax advisor, accountant, mortgage broker, managing agent, bill team, and project manager, and the final piece of the jigsaw in our case, an efficient and reliable solicitor. After the contracts had been exchanged on both properties, the vendor went back to the intermediary with the following message. Who was that buyer? He was the quickest we've ever had and so easy to deal with. I want to do more business with him. The next day, the vendor sent another message. Just a quick note to thank you for introducing your buyer to us. Our legal team have found his solicitor to be a delight, very efficient and easy to transact with. If there are any more properties he's interested in, we'd be more than happy to continue working with him. Thanks. So, if the first lesson from this experience was having a power team in place so that all your ducks are lined up and ready to go when the time comes, then the second lesson is the importance of having a network and being part of a community. This podcast has helped massively with expanding our network. And being part of a community such as the Auction Buyers Club undoubtedly played a part in being able to take advantage of the opportunities that came about through a unique set of circumstances over those two days in mid-November 2022. The final lesson was the concept of performing when it's time to perform. Rod Turner, host of the Rodcast podcast, offered great advice in episode 42 at a time when I thought we'd never find a property at auction and was beginning to have feelings of imposter syndrome, despite the fact that we had a portfolio of five HMOs and a property podcast. Rod had this to say. It's about performing. My advice is do. Yeah, don't talk, just do and perform. You prove the concept to them that actually you're a decent buyer. And then people will start to think, actually, this person is someone that does what he says he's going to do. I know he can perform or she can perform. 
they're going to start to move up my list in the black book. And I think that's so, so important. People will just get so fed up with getting calls from people that don't perform. They're just going to feel this is a massive waste of time. Now, that's easy said, but if you've got to start somewhere, you've just got to start the ball rolling. Start buying stuff, and then you're going to get to that point later in your kind of career. These words of wisdom have been ringing in my ear ever since, and I like to think that when it was time, we did perform. I can't remember what percentage of deals collapse after an offer has been accepted, but I think it might be more than one in three. So if you can develop a reputation as someone who does what they say they're going to do and buys when they say they're going to buy and doesn't drag their feet by asking unnecessary questions of the vendor's solicitors when in actual fact any potential problem is covered by the discount on offer, then people are going to want to do more business with you. And maybe even at a slightly better price, because they know that if you say you'll buy, then the deal won't be one of the 30 plus percent that do collapse. So that's where we are now. Now, in the interest of balance, I'm happy to admit that this account has painted a particularly rosy picture and that there were subsequent challenges with both of these properties that I'll cover in future episodes and which undoubtedly ate into our 126k profit. And there will be people listening who will rightly question whether we did really make 126k in two days. So let me play devil's advocate on myself. As my friend Dave So from episode 50 says, you can't eat equity. And the 126k profit I'm glorifying here is just that. It's only equity. And you could argue that it's only 126k if we were able to sell the properties at the capital values estimated by the home track reports. Secondly, our profits do not take into account refurb costs, but I would argue that these properties did not require too much in the way of refurb. They were both EPC rated C and only needed minor work. We could have rented them out without spending too much on them or flipped them for significant profit. In the end, our plan is to use them for serviced accommodation, which will require more funds to set up than if we just rented them out on ASTs. So I guess if you think it's a bit cheeky to say we made 126k in two days, then I'd probably have to say guilty as charged. But hopefully there's been some valuable insights along the way. Now, if we could just keep buying a property a day with an average paper profit of just over £60,000 each time, we'd be just under £23 million better off within a year. And our investors would be millionaires too. But unfortunately, opportunities like these don't come around every day. But it's not like every deal has to be amazing. Slow and steady wins the race. So in the next year, we're looking to do more deals and provide more opportunities for more investors to take a share of the pie. As my friend Jay Howard from the Auction Buyers Club says, it's all about leaving enough meat on the bone for the next person in line, as there's enough meat for everyone at the table. That just about wraps up this three-part special. Don't forget to sign up to our mailing list for a chance to win Bronwyn's book, which you can do at www.expatpropertystory.com. The only thing that remains for me to say is to share the show to spread the word. You've been listening to Expat Property. <laughs>